If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn to Luke chapter 9. This will be our last Sunday in Luke chapter 9. We'll finish off this this chapter this morning. Um, if you've been with us, we've been going through the book of Luke. Actually, I was thinking about it since December of 2012, which sounds a long time ago now, but we've taken some breaks in between there. Um, but we're here at the end of the book, or of the chapter, chapter 9 of Luke, and there's a a transition that's that's kind of going on here. We're entering into the the next major section of the of the book of Luke of how Luke has written this. So Luke began with kind of a prologue and introduction. It's about four verses long, saying why he was writing uh, the book of Luke, and then he moves into telling about the birth and the infancy of Jesus. And Luke has more material about the birth and the infancy of Jesus than than any other of the gospel writers. And so he takes a couple chapters and talks about that. Then beginning in chapter three, he talks about um, Jesus's preparation for ministry. He speaks of the ministry of John the Baptist, of Jesus' baptism, and then his uh, temptation as well. And, and then he, he begins his ministry in a region known as Galilee. And so this is uh, from, from about um, the, the middle, of the beginning, near the beginning of chapter 4, it's Jesus' Galilean ministry up until chapter 9, verse 50. And here, in, in, we remember in Jesus' Galilean ministry, he begins, he enters his hometown. You remember this scene? He goes into Nazareth. Then he takes up the scroll there in the synagogue and he, he reads these words from, uh, from the prophecy in Isaiah. Luke 4, 18 through 19 says the, Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he reads that prophecy and says, now these words are fulfilled in me. And as he, that, that claim sinks into the, the, the ears of those in his hometown, he, they, they reject him. The Jews of his hometown reject him. And so he proceeds to take this ministry of miracles and, and teaching throughout the region of Galilee. And he spreads through Galilee. But, but here in 951, there's, there's a shift of place and a shift of, of focus in the book of Luke. Verse, verse 51, all the way through 1927, tells us the story of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. So that's, that's what's happening now. You see it there in verse 51. It says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. It's not a direct route, but as one commentator said, it's, it's sort of a journey of destiny. Uh, and, and we see this idea of Jesus' destiny here in, in verse 51. This, he uses these phrases. He talks about, you notice that he says the day was uh, drawing, the days drew near for him to be taken up for his ascension. It's speaking of, you remember he talked with Moses and Elijah. Uh, what he was talking with them about is uh, talking about his departure. And that's what he's talking about here. The days were drawing near for his, for his betrayal, for his trial, for his death, and ultimately for his resurrection and his ascension. So those days are coming. And Jesus knows that this difficult road lies before him. He knows this is his destiny. He says it in 922. You remember that passage. That the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the chief priests and the rulers, and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. He knows this is his destiny. And, and knowing that, verse 51, and then later in verse 53, we find this phrase that, that Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. Other translations say he, he resolutely set out, or he was determined to go. He resolved to go to Jerusalem. He is determined. This is where he is going. He is heading to Jerusalem. Jesus is not being pushed to Jerusalem. 
but he is in full control of his destiny. Right from this moment, even from the moment he was born, Jesus is, is walking towards the cross, and no one is pushing him there. He is heading there of his own will. He says in John 10:18, No one, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. He is in control. And yet while Jesus knows exactly why he has come to earth, why he, how he understands his destiny, th- those around him still are trying to wrap their minds around who he is. They've misunderstood him in different ways, and we find here that they're still not sure, especially since Jesus has announced what his ministry is going to look like, how he's going to suffer rejection and be killed, and they just can't understand it. And I think the reality, the sobering reality of 951 through 62 that we're going to look at this morning is that if we misunderstand Jesus, he may pass by us. I think that's it's a scary thing to say, but I think that's what's going on here. If we misunderstand Jesus, he may pass by us. If we if we fail to understand who Jesus is and and why he has come and what it means to truly follow him, if that if we don't understand that, then he he may walk by us, or we may end up down a path assuming that we're following Jesus, only to realize that it's that's a dead end. None of us wants that, right? I mean, none of us wants to be passed up by Jesus. So we want to read here in in 9, 51 through 62 and think about how we misunderstand Jesus so that we can correct that thinking. So so look with me here in 9, 51, and I'll read through the end of the chapter in verse 62. Luke writes, When the days drew near for him, Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Right away in that first section, verses 51 through 56, we, we kind of see a way that, that people were misunderstanding Jesus and, and a way that, that we often misunderstand Jesus. And, and it's this, we misunderstand his mission. We misunderstand his mission. I think that's what's going on here with the Samaritans. You see in verse 52 there it says that, that Jesus sends messengers ahead of him to this village in, in this Samaritan village so that they can prepare for his visit. If you think about that, think about Jesus and his 12 disciples and then everyone else that, that kind of tags along along the way descending upon a little village. What that would be like for that small town. We might think about what it's like here in Louisville when everyone shows up for the Kentucky Derby, right? I mean, businesses prepare year-round to be ready for what that influx of people is going to do to the city. And and, and times ten, that's what would happen in these these little towns when Jesus and and all those that were following with him would would come in. And so Jesus would give the towns a, a heads up 
so that they could get a head start on, on preparing for his visit. But when this delegation that he had sent ahead returns, they don't come telling about how this town was making preparations because this town says, we don't want Jesus to come. They rejected Jesus coming into their town. They would not receive him. It's the, it's the same word that we looked at last week where, where, where Jesus says, whoever receives a child in my name, whoever welcomes a child in my name. This town did not welcome Jesus. He, he had no welcome in this town. Can you imagine that? This town rejecting Jesus? Why? Why did they do it? Verse 53 tells us, when you're reading your Bible, one of the key words that you should look for is because or for. It gives reasons for things. So if you ever see that word, try to understand what's going on. We notice that here it says, when, um, but the people, verse 53, did not receive him. Why? Because his face was set toward Jerusalem. So why did they not receive him? Because his face was set toward Jerusalem. What, what does that mean? Why, why, why would they not receive him because of that fact? We got to know a little bit about the, the relationship between the Samaritans and the Jews. There were some issues because the, the Samaritans were, were Jewish people that had intermarried with non-Jewish people. And, and so the, the, the Jewish people had, had issue with that. They, they took issue with those that, that were not pure Jews, as it were. It's in fact almost a form of, of racism that was going on between these two groups. They, they didn't like them because, well, we're really Jews and, and you guys are just kind of half Jews. And so that was part of the issue. But there was also a, a misunderstanding that the two groups had different ways of worshiping. We see that in John 4. If you know John 4, the woman at the well, who was a Samaritan, she brings out some different points. And, and what she's saying is that they worship at different places. So the Samaritans thought Mount Gerizim was the place to worship, and the Jewish people would, would go to Jerusalem to worship. And that seems to be the issue here, right? Because Jesus is set, his face is set towards Jerusalem, and they didn't like people coming through their town to go to Jerusalem because they felt like they were trying to make some sort of point, you know. Well, this is the real place to worship. That's their issue, it would seem like. But it's a sad reason to reject Jesus because Jesus' concern really has, has nothing to do with where the right place to worship is. Is that why he's heading to Jerusalem? He's not coming there to, to make a statement about who was right and who was wrong. His, his journey to, to Jerusalem isn't to prove some sort of point to the Samaritans. Why is he going? His face is set towards Jerusalem because that's where he's going to be crucified. That, that that's the mission that God has given him to do. That, that's where he's heading. That's what he, that's his, the goal of his, of his life. But they misunderstand his reason for, for going to Jerusalem. They, they misunderstand his, his mission. They don't, they don't get it. Misunderstand actually might not be the, the best word because there's a sense in which they are rejecting him. And they reject his, his mission. They didn't want him there. That's not just Samaritans, is it? Many people reject Jesus. Many people don't want to welcome Jesus into their life. They reject who he is. They reject why he's come. They won't receive him or his teaching. They reject the idea that they need to repent from sins and that that they need to put their trust in Jesus alone for salvation. You know, it's not unlike that scene that we just talked about where Jesus is in uh, in his hometown in, in Nazareth where he's beginning his Galilean ministry and he takes up that scroll of Isaiah and, they, and he reads it and he says, this is fulfilled in me. Then what does the crowd try to do? They try to literally throw him off a cliff because he was saying he was the Messiah and they didn't believe him. They misunderstood who he was and why he had come. Of course, back then, when he was in Nazareth, he didn't have James and John with him. But now James and John are here. James and John, who Mark nicknames the, so, the sons of thunder. 
Sons of Thunder. That's that's who James and John were known as. Sons of Thunder. It sounds like a pair in professional tag team wrestling, doesn't it? Here they are, the Sons of Thunder. And uh, and they kind of are like that. They want to drop an atomic elbow on this city because of what they've done to Jesus. So these guys, they, they, they hear what happens, that this town has rejected Jesus, and they say, Jesus, would you like us to call fire down on them? It's comical, isn't it? I mean, it's it's something that we should sort of laugh at. I acknowledge the humor in that, but but they're completely serious. I mean, they are 100% serious. Jesus, would you like us to call down fire from heaven to consume this city? And, and when we're done laughing, because I do think that that's it's part of the response, we should also admire them. To be totally honest, I mean, th- this is their zeal for Jesus, their zeal for His glory that He's been spurned. But also their faith. They, they believed. They didn't say, Jesus, will you call down fire? They said, Jesus, would you like us to call down fire? We believe that if you give us permission that we can do it. Just like like Elijah in the day on Mount Carmel where he called down fire. We believe, Jesus, if you tell us we're allowed to, that we can call down fire and consume this city. We should also recognize that, that they're right in a certain sense, aren't they? That rejection of Jesus ultimately leads to fiery judgment. Isn't that true? That people who reject Jesus will ultimately be punished. Those who refuse to receive Jesus as the Savior of the world will be punished as those who have rejected God, who have not welcomed Jesus into their life. But Jesus doesn't tell them to do it, does he? What's he do? Verse 55, but he turned and rebuked them. Why does Jesus rebuke them? Because the time for judgment is, is not now. You remember chapter 4, verse 19 that we read, this is the year of the Lord's Favor. And I think we're still in that sense in the year of the Lord's favor. John 3.17 tells us that, that God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but He sent His Son into the world so that, but, but that the world through Him might be saved. Jesus doesn't come on a mission of condemnation. He comes on a mission of salvation. He's here to bring salvation to people. Jesus coming to earth ushers in the year of the Lord's favor. And we are, we are still in that, that period of grace and kindness and salvation and mercy. And while all who reject Jesus deserve judgment, including us, because we're born rebels against God, sinning against Him, we all deserve the judgment that they were talking about. Second Peter 3.9 tells us that God is patient, that He is withholding judgment. This is what it says. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, some count slowness, but the Lord is patient towards you. Why? not wishing that any should perish, but that all would reach repentance. God's heart is that all would turn to him, that all would be saved. But the reality is that judgment will come. The year of the Lord's favor, it it, it will not be forever. Remember the rest of that prophecy in Isaiah 61, 1-2, Jesus quotes it, but he leaves off the last half. It, It talks about he's announcing the year of the Lord's favor, but the second half of that is, and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus wasn't bringing that in, but it is to come yet. There's this gap, there's this place, there's this time. But until that day of the vengeance of God, there is mercy. There's mercy on this Samaritan village and there's mercy on us. And so I stand here today and say, don't don't reject Jesus. This is the year of the Lord's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the year of the Lord's favor. Seek Jesus while he may be found. Understand that his face is set towards Jerusalem. Why? so that he can reject people, so, so that he can tell us the, the exact way how to worship. No, his, his face is set towards Jerusalem so that, so that he can bring salvation. 
so that he, he can go to Jerusalem to die, to take the penalty for our sin upon himself, to rise again and to give us new life. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, we should be filled with with a zeal. Not not a zeal that, that fire would fall and consume all the adversaries of God, but zeal that people might hear the good news of Jesus. Vengeance is God's, right? He's strong enough to, to defend his own name, and he will do it in his own time. But but let us not misunderstand his mercy. But, but we should be ministers of mercy to all who will receive him, and, and even to those who would continually reject him. But there will be a time, as Jesus says, where, where we shake the dust from our feet from a time, but we should do it with sorrow. We should do it with the hope that, that God's mercy will come. I like to wonder, maybe... Maybe some people from the Samaritan village that someone came back through. There were apostles that went into that area and they, they came back through and they, they proclaimed the gospel again. And that village that had rejected Jesus, there were some who said, no, I think he is who we said he, who you guys said he was even back then. So we, we need, we misunderstand the mission of Jesus and that causes problems. We need to understand why he came and the mercy that he offers to us. There's another group of people, though, in verses 57 through 62, right? And these are people who don't reject Jesus. These are people who want to follow Jesus. I mean, they, they understand in part who Jesus is, and they understand in part what his mission is, but, but they show another way of misunderstanding, actually. They don't misunderstand his mission, but they and we, we misunderstand true discipleship. We misunderstand true discipleship. Discipleship meaning following Jesus. We misunderstand what it really means to follow Jesus. This passage is going to remind us a lot of what we saw earlier in chapter 9, um, in verse, verses 9, 23 uh, through 27. You'll remember those verses. If you, if you go back, it will remind us of that. But there's some different nuances here. And, and what happens is that, that there's Jesus interacts with, with three different individuals. The first one comes and says, I will follow you anywhere, Jesus. The next one, Jesus says, follow me, and the man gives an excuse. And the third one says, I will follow you, Jesus, but. And so these, these are all men who, who want to follow Jesus, who are called by Jesus, but they misunderstand what it means to follow him. And, and there are things that we can learn from these guys about what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to, to not follow Jesus. It's a good question, isn't it? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus, to be a disciple? Did you know you can follow Jesus on Twitter? That Jesus has a Twitter account that you could follow him on? Is that all it takes? I'm Christian because I click this button, follow. That's part of the problem, I think, actually with this first guy. He comes forward and what does he say? He says, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus, I am fully committed to you. Many of us would look at this guy if he came in the church and he says, I follow Jesus wherever he will, will go. I, wherever he leads, I will, I will follow. I'm a committed follower of Jesus Christ. And, and, and this, this guy, this woman, they, they come Sunday morning and they're here all the time. They know the right things to say. They're committed to the church. They, they say, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a Christian. But, but does that make someone a true disciple? Does, does the fact that you say, I'm a follower of Jesus, or you say, I'm a Christian, does that make you a Christian? Jesus knows this guy's heart, and Jesus knows our hearts, and so he gets right to it. You know, if this guy came in and he said, I will follow Jesus wherever he leads, what would we say? Right on, man. We're, 
That's great. We're excited. We would encourage this guy, right? But what does, Je- does Jesus encourage him? He doesn't. He says, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I don't think that's what that guy was expecting to hear in response, right? It's a strange phrase, but what, what is what is Jesus getting at? I, I think he's getting at, as, mis, as we misunderstand discipleship, one of the ways we do is we, we misunderstand the sacrifice of discipleship. We misunderstand the sacrifice that is involved in true discipleship. So foxes have holes. They have a home. Birds of the, of the air have nests. They've got a place to sleep, but the Son of Man has nowhere to even lay his head. I think the issue is that, that as this man says, I will follow you, Jesus, Jesus comes and says, I want you to understand what you're stepping into. Let's count the cost here. You're not stepping into a place of luxury and, and comfort. True discipleship is not just saying, I'm with Jesus, but it's joining Jesus on this path of suffering, on this path of, of laying down our lives. This idea that Jesus has nowhere to lay his head is not just simply, though, that, that there's not luxury and comfort involved with following Jesus, but also that there is rejection involved with following Jesus. The fact that he has nowhere to lay his head means that no one is welcoming him, him in to, to stay with them. That We just saw it, right? Isn't that what the Samaritans did? Jesus, we don't want you. We, we reject you. You are not welcome here. And that's a reality for followers of Jesus. If you're going to follow with, if you say, I will follow you, then recognize you're signing up for a life that will, that will face rejection. If we can't embrace the fact that we are going to be rejected as followers of Jesus, then, then the walk of discipleship is going to be very hard. If we always want God to throw down fire on people that reject us, then we're going to always want God to throw down fire on people. Because that, that's what being a disciple is, that there is rejection involved. This is going to be difficult. If we reject rejection, then our walk with Jesus might just be superficial. We may misunderstand the fact that true discipleship involves sacrifice. It's not just saying, I'm a follower, but it's joining Jesus on this path of rejection. The second guy, though, shows another misunderstanding. So this guy shows us that there's a misunderstanding of the sacrifice that's involved in discipleship. This other guy shows there's a a misunderstanding of the urgency involved in discipleship. The urgency of discipleship. Because if anyone has a good excuse for not immediately following Jesus, this guy does. I would think. What's his excuse? says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. When I was in school and seminary, there, there were... It was strongly discouraged for you to miss a final. <laughs> if you had a final exam, you should be there. And the one they said, you know, if someone in your family dies, okay, we understand that. I actually missed a final one time because my daughter was being born. <laughs> and they gave me, that was okay. That was a good excuse. Uh, this guy seems to have a, a, a good excuse. I mean, his father, we assume, is on the verge of of death if he is not dead already. Some people say, well, maybe he's saying he wants to go back and wait until his father is dead. But I, I don't think that's here. He's, he's saying, let me first go and bury my father. So either his father has passed away just recently, or his father is sick and, and on the verge of death. And he says, Jesus, I want to take care of my dad. He's a good Jewish son. This is, this is what, this is right. But Jesus doesn't accept this as a as a legitimate excuse for not immediately following, does he? Why? 
I think part of the issue is the urgency of discipleship because of the way that, that Jesus responds. The way he responds is he says, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. We can think about it this way, okay? So there's two tasks. One, the burying of my father. Two, the proclaiming of the kingdom of God. So these two things are set before this man. And Jesus says, burying your father, it's important. There's other people that can do it. Proclaiming the kingdom of God is more important. And if you're truly a follower of me, then you are the only one that can do it. So these two tasks are, are, are set before him. And, and he says that there are, there are those that can be at home and take care of this, but there are those that are willing to follow me, those that, 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 and they're the only ones that can do this. There are people that are, that are dead. He says, let the dead bury the dead. There's two different kinds of dead there. The dead, let the dead bury the dead. The first dead are those that are spiritually dead, those that are not followers of Jesus. He says they can take care of that. It's important, but it's not necessary, as necessary as what I'm calling you to do. Let the dead bury the dead. You, because you are spiritually alive, you need to go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Because burying someone that's dead is important, but speaking words of life to those that are spiritually dead is even more important. Jesus tells this man to do what only a follower of Jesus can do. The ultimate and most important task of proclaiming the kingdom of God. And it supersedes all other tasks and responsibilities. It's more important than anything else. And it's important. It's, it's, it's urgent. Because think about this. What did we say? What happens to those who reject Jesus? If, they can, if people continue to reject Jesus, there is a judgment that is coming. There is a fiery judgment that will come on those who reject Jesus. And so there's an urgency that says, we have, we have to proclaim the good news now. And, and if you see that, if you know that, then don't, don't mess around with people that are, that are physically dead. They're, they're dead. Nothing can be done. But those that are spiritually dead, we can proclaim the good news. There's an urgency we need to tell others. Do, do you feel, as a follower of Jesus, do you feel that urgency? It's so easy to, to just get comfortable to not recognize that there will be a day when judgment will fall on those who have rejected Jesus. We can become so tied up in our own affairs, what's important to us. We think this is most important. And Jesus says, no, it's not as important as the task that I've given you. You are ambassadors for me in this world. Don't worry about anything else. This is the most urgent thing in the world for you to be doing. And I would say, too, if you're apart from Jesus, just again, I plead with you, be reconciled to God. There's an urgency to this. Come to know peace with God through Jesus. We continue to think about this this second guy, though. Just feel the scandal of those words. Some of you probably from a cultural background can feel that scandal even more than maybe I can. The idea of forsaking your father in his death, of not being there to bury your dad. That's a terrible thing, especially in, in, in other cultures. Here in the United States, you could probably get away with it, but in other cultures it's would be extremely frowned upon. Because Jesus isn't only speaking about the urgency of, of discipleship. He's speaking about a, a third misunderstanding. It's it's the, the misunderstanding of the complete dedication of discipleship. That there is complete dedication involved with the discipleship. Or, or, or we might say 
that Jesus is asking for your sole allegiance. He alone is the priority. And that's what Jesus says. He says, I am your number one priority. Following me is the focus of your life, even above caring for your own family. I don't think Jesus is trying to say that we don't have a responsibility to care for our family. I, I think he's making a point. I, I don't think that this flows for everyone. I think there are situations probably with, with overseas missionaries where this has probably been true, where they're not able to be home, to even be a part of their their parents or their loved ones' funerals because they're serving Jesus. But but for some of us, that we are able to, and, and I would say that there are, there are those in our congregation that care for their aging parents. And it is a beautiful thing. It's an, and it's a beautiful way to follow Jesus. It is the right thing to do. But I, I think that what Jesus is saying is that, that our love for family can become an excuse for us being fully devoted to Jesus. Our love for family can become an excuse for us being fully devoted to Jesus. I have to watch this as a young father. I love my kids. I, I love my kids and I want to serve my family, but I don't want to do it above my allegiance to Jesus. I want my children to know that I care for them, that I love them, but I want them to know that Jesus is the center of my life. I, I want my kids, I, I want to serve my children, but I don't want them to think that they are the center of my world. I want them to see that Jesus is the center of my world, that Jesus calls the shots finally. That he has the final authority in my life and no one else. And family, a good thing like family can become an idol in that way. We, we can love our family so much, our, our parents, our, our children, our spouse, that they actually get in the way of us fully following Jesus. And Jesus says, listen, I, I want complete dedication. I am the number one priority in your life. I think that's the point of this third guy as well, this idea of complete dedication. He comes and he says, Jesus, I will follow you. He even uses the word Lord. I will follow you, Lord. He's acknowledging who Jesus is. But what's that little word that follows? But, but I need to take care of something first. Let me first say farewell to those who are at home. Let me say goodbye to my family. Could have been a very noble desire. It may have been intended as just a simple task, but Jesus identifies what's going on in this guy's heart. And there's a duplicity there. There's a, there's a divided heart. He, he's, he wants to follow, but he's just, he's, he's not sure. And maybe, maybe Jesus knows. Maybe Jesus knows that if this guy goes back to say goodbye to his family, he's never coming back to follow Jesus. And so what does Jesus say to him? No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit. For the kingdom of God. It reminds me of mowing my grass. If you spend your time looking backwards all the time, what do the lines in your yard look like? Start veering off. You're not, you're not following the path because you're, you're always looking backwards. And sometimes in our, in our walk, we, we're always looking back. We're thinking, well, what am I missing? What have I neglected? What, you know, what have I forsaken for Jesus that, that I, I, I really, I kind of want to go back to that. It could be positive things like family. It could be negative things. That we get caught up and we think, man, you know, I'm walking with Jesus now and I have to say no to all these things that I used to love that I could say yes to. I kind of want to go back there. And Jesus says, once you put your hand to the plow, once you start walking this direction, if you, if you turn around, you're not, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. I require full, complete allegiance, complete dedication to me. You, you can't go halfway. It's, it's all or nothing.
Jesus alone proclaims our full allegiance. He is the greatest priority. That's a good question, I think, to ask ourselves, to say, what is my greatest priority? What are my greatest priorities? What are the things I value above everything else? And see if those things place Jesus on the throne as Lord, or if they allow other things or other people to be placed on the throne. Do my priorities show that Jesus is the one that's calling the shots in my life, or do my priorities say, my family, my friends, my loved ones, my own personal desires. That's what's most important to me. What are your priorities? The New Testament scholar Leon Morris writes of this verse. He says, the kingdom of God has no room for those who look back when they are called to go forward. Leon Morris says, the kingdom of God has no room for those who look back when they are called to go forward. Another theologian named Dr. Seuss uh, he wrote a poem about this, not about this verse. I think it fits. I know we're talking about serious things, and then to move into something comical maybe is not right, but but I think he makes the point. This is a poem, a book. I think it's longer than this, but it's called The Zode and the Road. <laughs> he says, Did I ever tell you about the young Zode who came to a sign at the fork of the road? He looked one way and the other way too. The Zode had to make up his mind what to do. Well, the Zode scratched his head and his chin and his pants, and he said to himself, I'll be taking a chance. If I go to place one, that place may be hot. So how will I know if I like it or not? On the other on the other hand, though, I'll feel such a fool if I go to place two and find it's too cool. In that case, I may catch a chill and turn blue. So place one may be best and not place two. Play safe, cried the Zode. I'll play safe. I'm no dunce. I'll simply start off to both places at once. And that's how the Zode, who would not take a chance, went no place at all with a split in his pants. <laughs> now that's funny, but it speaks of a sad reality, doesn't it? I mean, this is this is our lives sometimes, and we stand at this crossroads and we say, are you going to follow Jesus? And that's where this guy's at. He says, Jesus, I will follow you, but I also love this, and so I'm going to try to do both. <laughs> and he says that you can't. We all slip into this way of thinking. But Jesus says it's it's all or nothing. Discipleship following me, it requires complete dedication. We think about the two roads that lay before us. There's a broad way that leads to destruction, and there's a narrow path that leads to life. And we can't go down both. We have to choose. There's no way you can walk down both paths at once. And so the question is, which one are we on? And the reality is... If we don't get this straight, if we continue to misunderstand Jesus, if we misunderstand his mission, if we misunderstand what true discipleship is, if we misunderstand Jesus, he may pass us by. What happened to these guys? You know, you don't know. Jesus doesn't say what they decided to do. Did did they, did this, you know, maybe this third guy, he says, okay. I'm with you. I won't, I won't turn back. We, we don't really know, and I think that's on, on, on purpose. We know what happens to one guy. You remember the rich young ruler? Jesus tells him to sell everything that he has and to follow him because Jesus was identifying the idol of this man's heart. He said, you love money more than you love me. You want that more than you want me. And so that, that man, we know what happens to him, though, don't we? What does it say? He went away sad because he loved things. He loved his money and he walked away from Jesus. That's one way you can go when we're faced with this. When you when you see who Jesus is, you might say, 
It's not for me. But there's another guy that I think about. That's the guy who found the treasure in the field, that parable. You remember that? So this man finds the treasure in the field, and the treasure is Jesus. And what does that guy do? He sells everything. He says, Jesus, I'll make any sacrifice. Jesus, you are the greatest priority in my life, and I see the urgency of this task, and I will get rid of everything. And then what's it say? And for joy he did it. He did it how? Out of out of joy. The man who rejects Jesus walks away sad. The man who gives up everything to find Jesus walks away filled with joy. Those are, in a sense, the two paths that lie before us. Would you like to go down the path where you will be sad for rejecting Jesus and the end is that that fiery judgment that we deserve? Or do we go down this path that's that's difficult, that's suffering, it's urgent, that, that requires complete obedience, but that is filled with true joy? So do we understand Jesus? Do, do we get him? Do we understand his mission? Do we understand that, that in mercy he has come to bring salvation to all who receive him? That this is the year of the Lord's favor. That now is the time. Now is the time to, to, to bow the knee, to recognize who he is, to see that he has come not to reject us, and not even at this point to bring judgment, but he has come to bring salvation. This is the year of the Lord's favor. Come and receive the, the blessing of salvation. And if we understand his mission and, and if we've received that, we've said, Jesus, I am a sinner. I do deserve judgment. And we've bowed our knee and we've, we've, we've accepted him as, as Lord. We say that. You are the Lord of my life. Then do we understand what true discipleship is? If we have received him, if we have welcomed him, it says to all who received him, those who believe in his name, he has given the right to become children of God. If we are true children of God, then Jesus calls us to a life of sacrifice. He calls us to a life of, of urgent mission, that, that his priority is now our priority. And he's called us to a life of wholehearted devotion, that he alone calls the shots in our life. I think there's different ways that, that we can respond to this truth. Again, it, today is the day of salvation. If you've never bowed your knee to Jesus alone, then Come while you can. Come in the day of God's favor. But as we think about discipleship, we think about the things that we may need to sacrifice and to ask questions about um, about the urgency. Do I see the urgency of, of this task? And even of our, our dedication to Jesus, are there things, are there priorities that are that are taking the place of Christ in my life? I think there's another really practical application, and that's that's baptism. It's not in this text, and I don't want to bring it in unnecessarily, but at the same time, what is baptism? It's an identification that we understand the mission of Jesus, why he came. We identify him, that, that it's his life, death, and resurrection that brings us new life, that brings us salvation. So we, we see that, we understand it. But it's also not just an identification that he gives us salvation, but it's an identification that I'm on this road with you, Jesus. I publicly proclaim to everyone who can see that I'm with you, that I will die to self and I will live for Jesus alone. That, that death, that burial of our, of our old self and the raising up to new life, the death of our old desires and the raising to walk with Jesus. And it's this public proclamation, not just of saying, I will follow you wherever you go, but not doing it, but saying, I'm, I'm in this. I'm on this road with you, Jesus. So I'd encourage you, if you've never um, been baptized, as a believer in Jesus, that that's 
I think that's the first step of obedience, and that's a wonderful step to say, I'm on this road with you. So if we misunderstand Jesus, he may pass us by. But if we understand who he is, if we understand his mission, if we understand what true discipleship is, it's the path of greatest joy in our lives.